Hi, everybody. This is Issues to Discuss, a brand new podcast that is dedicated to bringing discussion to all current political events, but also to increasing discussions on issues that are under discussed in America today. Okay, so in getting started, we're going to focus on some political happenings right now, and then we'll move into the issue to discuss section, which is where I'm going to talk about an issue that I think needs to be discussed more. Uh, but in starting, I think it's important to start with a topic that was pretty big news over the weekend, and that's the whole debate over whether or not we should return to schools. Now, this is an issue that I feel has become incredibly uh, politicized, uh, when in reality, there's a lot of nuance, right? But you have one side and the other, and they've staked positions, and they don't want to even concede that the other side has any, you know, any any uh, validity to their argument. You have the open school side, which is being pushed by Trump right now. Um, you know, he's driving home that narrative, we need to return to schools, we need to return to schools. And then you have the closed school side, which is really being driven by the media and, and political opposition to Trump. And here's the thing, both sides hold justifiable concerns, right? And that's the thing that in all issues, you have to remember there's nuance and it's never a one side or the other, one side's right, one side's wrong thing. So in this scenario, if we look at opening schools, one of the things that we have to consider, and this has been said by a lot of people, that schools are essentially state-subsidized daycare. And so our economy cannot reopen fully until schools are open because parents have children and they can't go back to work if they have to look after those children, right? And there's not going to be enough daycare for these uh, children. So yeah. so all of a sudden you have parents, they need to go back to work, but they can't because they have to watch their kids. And this is not only does it hurt the reopening of the economy, but it harms lower income people. Because if you're someone who's lower income and you need to go back to work, but you have your kids and you're trying to figure out what to do. Maybe you can't, even if there is daycare, you can't afford it. And so it's really harming low in, lower income people. But another thing that's been pushed by the open school side is that, hey, children's futures are being negatively affected, right? Because they, they've talked about this in great detail about all the studies that show that if children aren't in the classroom with their peers, their cognitive and social development isn't going to be as uh, good as it could be. And their, you know, their academic learning isn't going to be as good as it could be so that in the future, they're going to be harmed because of it in the long-term cost to them and, you know, their generation, they're going to be harmed because of it, which is a valid concern. I mean, I, I don't know enough about it, but you hear the experts talk about it and it makes sense. And, and another one is the fact that children being able to go in school, they benefit from the resources that these schools are providing. And that's something that people ignore. I mean, f just from the fact being able to get a free breakfast and a free lunch, that is huge for a lot of these children. But not only that, you have counselors there who can talk to children. You have teachers who, they, you know, they observe the children when they come in because they can see if there's child abuse going on at the home, right? Because think about a lot of these kids right now, there's no one watching them. There's no one kind of keeping an eye on them. And so if a kid's getting beat by the parents, abused by the parents, no one knows. And that's one of the other resources that schools provide. I, I believe I heard somewhere, I don't have the statistic for it, that teachers are the number one reporters of child abuse. So, hey, children are, you know, struggling with that. See, that's a justifiable, all three of the points that I have just made are justifiable concerns for opening schools, that the, econ the economy cannot fully get going until schools are back in session, that children's futures are going to be negatively affected, and that children benefit from the resources that school provide. However, 
That doesn't mean that the keep schools closed side of it is wrong in their argument, right? Because they have their own concerns that are slightly different from the open school side, right? The closed school side, instead of saying, hey, you know, we, while we recognize the disease is having an impact, we, you know, we just need to get back in school. They're saying no, because we don't know enough about the virus. And at this point in time, what we do know is that a large percentage of teachers and faculty are within vulnerable populations. They're either old enough to be vulnerable or they're immunocompromised. And so what that means is that there's a good share of teachers and faculty members who, if schools were to reopen, they would literally be putting their lives on the line. And that's a, that is a valid concern. And and even if a the percentage of people who are vulnerable um, aren't, you know, that's not what you're talking about. Even the teachers and faculty who aren't vulnerable, they may live in a household with people who are vulnerable. You know, they may go associate with people who are vulnerable. Or, you know, and, and I get it. You can say, well, just, you know, avoid contact. But it's very hard. And so, look, teachers and faculty members, they very much, they look at it and they say, hey, I, I'm a teacher. My job is to teach children. I do not get paid to risk my life for children. Right. Because and I think this is a problem in this country. We have this idea and this we saw this with the whole arming teachers debate where teachers came out and said, look, I signed up to teach kids. That doesn't mean I signed up to put my life on the line for kids. And, and I think sometimes we forget that, that these teachers are so morally great. That doesn't mean they want to risk their own well-being and their family's well-being for children. Right. Valid concern. So the closed school side, they say, hey, I, we understand what you're saying in the open school side. But we do not feel that we should risk teachers and faculty members, both their their health and their family's health, in the idea of reopening schools. Now, those are the two sides. And like I said, I just gave you both sides have justifiable concerns, very clearly. Um, but overall, th- this is something that's going to be continuously d- discussed and debated over the coming months, especially as we get closer to the fall. Um, and I, I would just say to anybody who's listening, try to avoid politicizing this. Try to see the nuance within it so we can have a fair discussion on it. Don't make it a right versus left thing because, any you know, it, that that's never good. I, I've noticed, especially with the media, we get this thing. Look, Trump has said some egregious things. He said some wrong things, blatantly wrong things countless times. But even a broken clock is right two times a day. And sometimes when Trump is, you know, right or he at least has a justifiable concern, which I think he does in this, hey, we need to reopen schools. You'll get people who say, nope, 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 we can't do it. And what happens is you get the right versus left dynamic again, which politicizes it. And then people, they choose their sides and they don't listen to the other side. And then we can't have a discussion. And trust me, folks, we need to have a discussion on this because we have to figure out how we can reopen schools or create a system where we alleviate the impacts of the virus, but also alleviate the impacts on students. Uh, And kind of talking about that, you know, if I had a say in the matter, this is just me pondering it. If I had a say in the matter, I think I would push for some form of a hybrid system um, that's a little bit different from what's being advocated now. You're seeing a lot of school systems are doing hybrid in the sense that maybe two or three days a week children will come in, but then the rest are remote. And I, I just don't, I don't see how that alleviates the concerns of you know any group. Um, for me, I think it would the hybrid system would be more something along the lines that. Uh, you bring non-vulnerable children back into the classroom with non-vulnerable teachers teaching them, and we allow vulnerable faculty and teachers to remain remote um, and and teach vulnerable children, right? So if a child is vulnerable or someone in their family is, 
Uh, they should be able to remain remote, be taught by the vulnerable teachers in a remote system over Zoom or whatever, and with the school system taking the appropriate measures to ensure that they have all the technological resources to do so uh, appropriately. Um, you know, so again, you know, vulnerable children, they're allowed to stay home. Vulnerable uh, teachers allowed to stay home. So you have a remote system, but then you have non-vulnerable children are allowed to go to school. Let non-vulnerable teachers teach, right? Younger teachers who aren't vulnerable or don't live with anybody who's vulnerable, let them teach. Uh, now, I think that within this system, we're going to have to implement some form of federal funding to pay the teachers to take this risk, right? Because, look, these teachers, they're taking a risk, and we have to uh, uh, pay, pay them a, a, a bonus, right? So, uh, any like if if you as say Donald Trump and the Republicans want to push schools to reopen, then you need to at least recognize the risk to the teachers, and compensate them accordingly, like a risk bonus. And in doing so, right, um, that I think that's going to be vital because if you say tell a teacher who's like, look, we understand that you are facing a risk. Um, I think, it, but we're going to compensate you for that risk. I think that would lead a lot of teachers who are, who are non-vulnerable to want to do it, right? Because we have to compensate them for this risk, this inherent risk. Not only is this common sense to me, but it tells the teachers, hey, we recognize the risk you are taking and we appreciate it. Because as I was saying earlier, far too often in this country, we appreciate teachers in words only when we should appreciate them in dollars. And this is one of those scenarios where we should appreciate them in dollars. And so anyway, look, long story short, both sides, they have justifiable concerns. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I think that we need to have a nuanced discussion on this matter to figure out some way to ensure that we can alleviate the risk of the virus while alleviating the risk of, you know, having distance learning. I think I just proposed a system that may work. Consider it if you're listening. Think about where am I right? Where am I wrong? Maybe ponder and create your own system and let me know about it. Um, but yeah, it's, I think, you know, just have the vulnerable children go in, be taught by the vulnerable, uh, have the non-vulnerable children go in, be taught by the non-vulnerable teachers who are being compensated for the risk while vulnerable students are able to stay at home being taught by vulnerable teachers and ensure that those students have the technological resources uh, to do that, you know, and I'll give you an example. Like the school could say, "Hey, we understand you don't have internet, we or you don't have um, a computer. Hey, well, he, well, here's a school-funded computer. Bring it back to us at the end of the year, or the end, you know, whenever this ends, um, and then maybe figure out a way we can ensure that they have internet and whatnot. That's a little beyond. Maybe you could see some internet providers step in out of goodwill and provide it to these families uh, if they're lower income. But yeah, I think something like that would alleviate this issue. But do you see what we just said? We had a nuanced conversation about what to do on this matter. And that's not that's not what's happening right now. Right now, it's politicized. You have two sides, and they've taken an opinion, and they're battling the other side's opinion. And that's not going to get us anywhere near a solution for children in returning to school in the fall. Okay, let's move on to electoral politics. It's a pretty big week in electoral politics. Um, as we've seen, Donald Trump, he's continuing to trend downwards in the polls. And... It's interesting. I think the big reason you're seeing from what I, I've looked at a couple different polls, what you're seeing is he's really falling among two groups. One being uh, older white voters, which is a staple of the Republican Party. And I think the reason that he's faltering there 
is because his response to this pandemic has not been that great. And those voters are the most susceptible to the virus, right? So you have these individuals whose lives are at risk and they're going, huh, you're not taking this seriously and this could kill me or my family or a friend. So, you know, I don't know if I can take you serious anymore. So you're seeing he's falling among that group and that that group is one of the most substantial when it comes to voter turnout and they could ensure whether or not he gets reelected. A second group I saw in one poll and I I don't have the poll with me unfortunately. It was just happenstance I saw it. He's trending downwards with younger blue collar voters, right? And I think by and large they're the ones who are being impacted by the economic downturn. So, whenever the economy goes down, you start to see the incumbent uh, lose his support. So he's he's just He's doing pretty poorly right now. And and I think by and large, he hasn't done anything to change that, right? He hasn't, instead of saying, why am I trending downwards and, you know, fixing his behavior, which I would say he, if he wanted to fix his behavior, he should look at the first two weeks of March when he started to go up in the polls because he was constraining himself. But since then, he's gone back to, you know, how he is, which is he has to be the primary uh, he has to be the, the the primary person. You know, the show is about him. And he's going, he's getting in Twitter battles for no reason. And he's back to his old ways and he's falling in the polls because we're currently going through a pandemic and economic crises and experiencing racial tension at levels we haven't seen in 25 years. And he's he's doing nothing to recognize that. He's not leading. Um, and so you're seeing that in the polls. Uh, I think it's interesting, though, and I, I think most people have probably experienced this. If you have a conversation with somebody, and you say, hey, who's a Trump supporter, right? I've gone and talked to some Trump supporters, and I've talked to him about his recent performance in the polls and his leadership through these crises. And whenever you bring up the polls, you see a lot of Trump supporters will say, well, you can't trust the polls because they were wrong in 2016. And, you know, you're going to keep, anytime you have a conversation with someone on that, you know, they're going to say that because, hey, in 2016, the polls were wrong. But I, as far as I understand, from what I've seen, I think poll, uh, pollsters have recalibrated their polling so that they are being more cognizant of the groups that overperformed in, or overvoted uh, in 2016 versus groups that didn't. So I, as I've seen just from you know, perusing the Internet and staying on top of these polls, it seems that they're, they're polling uh, non-college degree-holding whites more now, which makes the polls more... Um, more representative of the Trump base. Now, so anytime someone says that, you got to be say, hey, well, look, the polls that they're doing now are not the polls they were doing in 2016. So, you know, I, I think it would be, it would behoove Trump voters to recognize what's going on in the polls, but it would also behoove Trump and his team to recognize that and recalibrate their behavior because it is not going good right now. But we, you know, there's still four months to the election, so you never know. But yet yeah, they are falling in the polls. Now, this falling in the polls is having a drastic effect on Senate races. Uh, Democrats right now, they're very happy. You know, Republicans aren't. Democrats are very happy right now because they're seeing their odds of winning back the Senate increase largely because of Trump's slide, because of his absence of leadership or perceived absence of leadership through these crises. Uh, Rollcall.com was discussing this in an article written by Nathan L. Gonzalez, and it's titled uh, uh, Rating Changes, Democratic Control of Senate, More Likely Because of Trump. And in this, uh, Gonzalez talks about the fact that you have close races in continuously competitive states like in Colorado, in Arizona, Maine, and North Carolina. But now you're seeing, more importantly, you're seeing 
competitive races in states like Kansas, Texas, Alaska, and South Carolina that are usually safe Republican seats. And as Gonzalez um, argues, the biggest factor here is that the president, he's underperforming in many of these states based off poll numbers by 8 to 12 points compared to 2016. So this, this slide that Trump is experiencing, president, over these past four months, it's not only affecting his uh, re-election shot, it's affecting Republican senatorial candidates in states that are usually safe Republican seats. And so I think that's very indicative of how the American people feel about Trump's leadership right now, because, you know, it's one thing for his polling numbers to go down. But the fact that all of these senators in seats that are usually completely safe Republican seats, they're trending downwards and their likelihood of getting reelected is falling by the day. Um, So as as Gonzalez says it pretty perfectly, he says it's not a large it's not a larger number of Democratic candidates are going to win Trump states. It's that Trump is on pace to win fewer states than four years ago. And so this essentially makes clear that Trump's downward slide in the polls is drastically hurting the Republicans' chances of maintaining the Senate this November. And you're wondering, okay, how many seats did the Democrats have to win? Well, so the Democrats only need to win four seats to take back the Senate. If they win the White House, they only need three because you get the vice president as the tiebreaker. But right now, just assuming, just guarantee they win back the Senate, they need four seats. Okay? Um, and as the article lays out, based off what's going on right now with current polling, there are 12, 12 GOP seats in play at the moment. So this makes the likelihood that the Democrats are able to hit that four-seat threshold more and more likely as time goes on, if Trump continues acting the way that he does. Uh, look, if I were the Republicans here... I would be making a big push to Trump to modify how he is handling the uh, pandemic, the economic crises, and what is going on with the racial tension in this country, right, and, and, and racial injustice in this country and the attempt, the movement to solve for that racial injustice because he's just, he's botching it. I mean, he's botching it, and it is evident in his poll numbers over the past four months and the complete downfall that we've seen in those poll numbers. Um uh, Look, his leadership style has been rebuffed, okay? And if he doesn't change course soon, it could be too late. Now, if I were the Democrats, okay, I would continue amplifying the two crises along with his horrible response to movements for racial justice in this country. I would advocate to the Biden campaign as well. I'd say, look, stay in the basement as long as possible because— well, their limited presence campaign that they're running, it's really helping them. I think it was Chris Christie who said, why would you leave the basement if you're winning in the polls? Just stay in the basement. Uh, so yeah, if I was them, I would say, hey, get out and do it. Now, this week, actually, talking about electoral politics, we actually have a couple of primaries. So there are three primaries tomorrow on Tuesday for Senate and House seats. There's primaries in Maine. There's primary runoffs in Texas. And most notably, there's a primary runoff in Alabama. And for the you know for today, we're going to talk about what's going on in Alabama, the runoff election, because this is a very notable one between former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville, or coach as they call him, um, and former senator from Alabama and United States Attorney General Jeff Sessions. So in March, Tommy Tuberville, he beat Jeff Sessions in the Republican primary by about 13,000 votes. And there was about seven candidates in that primary. Uh, it wasn't a, enough of a vote lead to uh, 
just went out, right? So it triggered a runoff election, which if you don't know, it's essentially where in some states, if the vote difference isn't large enough, they, they're going to hold a second election. Um, so look, Tommy Tuberville, former Auburn coach, he, he's been a staunch supporter of Trump since he announced his candidacy. He even received Trump's endorsement following the March primary. He's got no political experience, mind you, but he's really, he's hitched his wagon to Trump. And in Alabama, that means a lot, especially, you know, in Jeff Sessions, talking about that, he's a former senator from Alabama. He was probably the first senator to endorse Trump. However, Trump has been notoriously critical of Sessions, uh, especially because, you know, Jeff Sessions recused himself from the Russia investigation in the early days of the Trump administration and all throughout the you know his time there, and even once he resigned and left the administration, Trump has been incredibly critical of him because he felt that he should not have recused himself and he should have done more to protect Trump from that investigation. And look, Trump's been critical of him, but Sessions has been nothing but kind towards Trump, right? But here's the problem: in Alabama, where Trump, <laughs> Trump, you know, his word is essentially the word of God in Alabama. You know, Trump coming out and being critical of Jeff Sessions has a big impact. Um, now there hasn't been any polling done recently because of the pandemic, but Tommy Tuberville was up big on Jeff Sessions during the last, um, polls done. Uh, there was an article in AI.com, AL.com, excuse me, which is Alabama.com. Um, and in this article, it's, it's titled why the nation is watching sessions versus coach. And it's by Greg Garrison. And in this article, they talked about the importance of this election. And as they said, look, Trump looms large in Alabama, and this is going to be really representative of where Trump's at. Um, but also, it's going to be important because we're going to see, will Alabama elect a candidate with no experience who Trump's endorsed? Or are they going to elect the candidate that has experience, that's been in politics his entire life, right? And and I think it's going to be interesting because as we, what the, the author laid out, and I thought this was very interesting. He talked about, look, um, Tuberville, uh, if Tuberville wins, based off what he said and his love of Trump, is he is he just never going to criticize Trump? Always just ride with whatever Trump says? It's a pretty interesting thing to consider. Uh, but if Sessions wins, this is the more important thing, right? If Jeff Sessions wins, has Trump screwed Sessions in the actual uh, November election, right? Because he's just been nothing but critical. Or would Trump come out and endorse Sessions and take back what he said? You know, who knows? But in, it's interesting enough because right now you have Doug Jones, right, who beat Roy Moore for that seat. You know, really, he wouldn't have won if he wasn't running against Roy Moore, who had the whole scandal with underage women. He's a Democrat in a, a state that's historically, in the past couple decades, Republican. So either candidate's going to have a, you know, probably an easy running against Doug Jones. But it's just interesting to see what will happen if Sessions wins. Will Trump stop criticizing him? You know, who knows? It's going to be interesting. But this is one to watch. I think a lot of people are watching this one, and, and rightfully so. It's going to be an interesting one. Okay. So as I was saying right now, we have that's pretty much what's going on. Okay. So as we know, the big debate over schools, what are we going to do with that? You know, you have two sides who have really politicized it when there's a lot of nuance to that discussion. Um, and remember that, and the reasons given given for that. Uh, right now, we've seen in electoral politics, Trump is really trending downwards in the polls, and it's having an, an effect on the House and Senate races, but particularly the Senate races, and it's decreasing the likelihood that the Republicans will be able to maintain a uh, Senate in November. 
And that's, it's, look, that's important, obviously. And, you know, both the Republican and Democratic parties, they are very cognizant of that. And they're trying to get that under control. Uh, we talked about the primaries that are going on tomorrow. Those are going to be interesting to watch. Please follow those, especially the Alabama runoff election between Tommy Tuberville and Jeff Sessions. All right, everybody, that's what's going on in the country today and over the weekend. Let's move on to the issue to discuss. So the one that I wanted to start with, I had wanted to talk about plea deals, but I, I was walking today. I like to go for morning walks, and I like to kind of sit there. I talk to myself as I walk. Okay, so I literally, I walk down the street, and I just argue with myself. I probably look crazy, uh, but that's okay. It's how I do my best work. Um, and I was thinking, what would I like to talk about? And one that came to mind, realistically, was just internships. Because I was thinking about, look, right now, most college students, they're not doing internships. Uh, and they're not doing internships, obviously, because what's going on with the pandemic but in usual years, during normal times, college kids would be angling to get an internship uh, during the summer. Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the prevalency uh, of unpaid internships and how unpaid internships negatively affect lower middle class and lower class uh, people at the expense of upper middle class and upper class people. Um, where I got the inspiration from this was for a book called, by a book called Richard by Richard Reeves and it's called Dream Hoarders. And what Richard Reeves talks about in the book Dream Hoarders is he talks about how in this country by and large the upper middle class and the upper class, right? He always says the upper middle class and the upper class. They are so concerned with their children succeeding that they create a system that essentially creates a glass uh, a floor for their children so their children don't fall out of the upper middle class or the upper class but inherently that thus creates a glass ceiling for children in the lower middle class or lower class and it cuts off their economic mobility and in this he talks about a wide range of issues you know that that um, permeate you know our society and affect lower middle class and lower class people one of which is the system of internships and I thought this was so fascinating. Let me tell you, it was so fascinating to read because, look, as a college kid, I know I have only been able to do one internship uh, because it's this notion to tell a college student, hey, yeah, we're going to not pay, we're not going to pay you uh, for this three month internship. So how about you move to the city and survive for three months without pay? I can't do that. I know a lot of people who can't do that. Um, and it's an unfortunate system that we have. And, and, and why that matters is that internships are important. Internships give you experience that you can put on your resume that helps you in your job search after college. But they also, they put your foot in the door at a lot of businesses. So if you do an internship somewhere and then you graduate college, well, all of a sudden you know people at that organization or business that might be able to get you a job because that's social capital and social capital is so crucial to succeeding um, in America. And so look, if most internships are unpaid, what happens is most students aren't able to do them. And that means only upper middle class or upper class people are able to do them. And then they're the only ones who are able to reap the benefits. And so they continue to benefit at the expense of others. Now, what Richard Reeves says, he goes, look, internships are vital. Let's create a system that allows students to uh, uh, be able to do un to do unpaid internships without, you know, bringing financial ruin on themselves. And he says the easiest way to do that would be opening up student loans for summer internships. And he said, and look, he, he admits, look, 
we have a student loan problem in this country, and I know the notion of people taking out more student debt is not a good one, but in this instance, you're at least giving people who otherwise would have no option the option to be able to afford themselves the opportunity to do an unpaid internship, which can reap great benefits for them in the future. And I thought this was a great proposal. I think that it would really benefit a lot of people like myself and my friends who otherwise can't, you know, do one. And and it makes sense because, yeah, I just want to paint you a picture real quick before I continue. Imagine it's spring and you have the career fair at your school and you're walking around and you're, you know, you're looking at all these tables, especially the ones that interest you and are in your field and you talk with the person, you go, wow, this, this is for me. This is what I've always wanted to do. And then they hand you the brochure and you're looking through the brochure. You're looking at the internships you just talked about with the person and you see it's unpaid. And immediately, you know, this is not an opportunity for me. And why does that matter? Well, you might have been the best candidate for that position. And now someone who is a lesser than candidate, but simply comes from a better financial background, will be able to take that spot from you. Not very fair. Life's not fair, but still it's not fair, and it doesn't allow the best candidates to succeed. And so, you know, I was thinking about that. And so when you think about what Richard Reeves proposes with allowing, say, that student who's walked into that career fair, who's found an internship internship that they're very interested in, they could at least have the opportunity to say, huh, I want to do this internship. This is the place where I'd like to work. I'd like to get this experience. You know what? I'm going to take out the two or three or four thousand dollars that I need to suffice myself for the summer to be able to, you know, survive while I do this internship. And that's amazing to give them that opportunity. Uh, and it may essentially put that person on a path towards a much brighter future. I love that. I think that that's a great thing to do. I'm sure that there are going to be people on both sides who say, well, we don't need people taking out any more student loans they can't pay. And I get that. But at the end of the day, right now, I think it's the only way in which we could alleviate the issues that arise from having unpaid internships, which only benefit upper middle class and upper class people who have the financial means to pay to essentially, you know, survive for three or four months without any income at all while doing these internships. Now, I was also, while I was walking, I started thinking, well, what are some other solutions? Are there any other solutions that can be done by the government to incentivize, you know, some form of solution. And I thought, well, I think it would be very interesting. And I I haven't, you know, I don't have much research on this, but I'm just throwing it out there into the universe and we'll see what happens with it. What if we offered tax cuts, tax incentives, right, to businesses, whether they're small or big, to pay interns? Okay, so say they hire some summer interns, they pay them. Okay, so they pay these interns, and then when it comes to tax time, they can write it off. And I'm sure that they have ways of writing off paid interns anyway, but sweeten the pot for them. Because I think that in that way, it would be a, 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 a beneficial cycle. You would have people who would thus be able to get paid for the inter- internship they're doing, and you've incentivized the business to do that through tax for tax reasons, which then allows someone to get experience and become a more productive member of society, and yada, yada. And it's a very fair system, too, right? Because then the best candidate for the job will get the internship, not the one that just has a better financial background. Um, so, yeah, that's my solution. Uh, I'd love to hear from you guys, though, how you feel about this matter. Um, I have a issues to discuss at gmail.com email. Let me pull that up right now. Uh, issues to discuss at gmail.com. 
is the email. You can feel free to reach out to me. Tell me what you think about this um, and whether you think either one of those solutions would be uh, applicable to fixing or resolving the issues with unpaid internships or, hey, do you have an idea of yourself? that you would like to propose. I, I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, I am currently working on a website for the podcast. I will have that up as soon as possible. I uh, just got to get everything situated. The website's about done. I just need to get the mailing list created on there so that instead of you going to my email, you could just go to my website and you can reach out. Tell me how you feel. Tell me whether you agree or disagree with me because that's really, you know, what I'm trying to do with this podcast, and I, I, you know, I left this part out of the introduction, is I'm trying to create an open discussion, right? So I'm trying to talk about what's going on in the world today, but also bring discussion to issues that are under-discussed. How often do you ever hear anyone talk about unpaid internships? Never. And there are countless other issues that I'm going to be bringing up during this show because I want people to start having conversations with one another about these issues. Um because too soon, you know, I, I didn't say this in the introduction, and I'm slightly aggravated that I did, but I feel that our national discourse is centered around four, five, six issues. And because it's centered around four, five, or six issues, we don't talk about the plethora of other issues out there that are having drastic impacts on millions of Americans' lives every day. So that's essentially the goal of the show, bring discussion on those. I hope that eventually I'll get to the point where I'm interviewing people on these matters. Um, and I, I just want to, like I said, foster discussion and open discussion. I want to hear everybody's opinions on the matter. I want to give them a free space to talk about these uh, matters. But yeah, I want to thank you guys for listening. It has been you know, an honor to do this first episode of Issues to Discuss. I really appreciate you guys hanging in there with me for the past 34 minutes. And I will see you on Friday. Okay, so I'm doing an episode on Monday, an episode on Friday. I cannot wait to be back here again with you. Please send me an email to issues to discuss at gmail.com. And I'll have the website up soon so you can subscribe to the email list and let me know how you feel. Let me know if you agree or disagree with me and, and whatnot. And uh, yeah, and uh, it's been an honor, guys. Have a great week. Stay safe and uh, enjoy, enjoy this wonderful and beautiful summer week.